Today's episode of Your Stories is sponsored by Overcast, a better podcast app than whatever you're using right now, unless you're using Overcast. Get Overcast for free on the App Store. Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your stories to me has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there. No questions asked. Uh, I've heard stories about all those things. Uh, maybe not, not a lot of push-ups. I maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdalogs is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story and their story is your story and then it's our story and then it's a podcast so it's everybody's story and then you've shared it and gosh that's great huh and even if you don't think you're a nerd you probably are it's easily the most midwestern thing i've ever been a part of hey everybody I'm Eric Garneau, and this is the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories podcast. This week, we've got the first part of a very special episode we recorded in Ava, Illinois this past Friday. Now, if you don't know where that is, it is very far downstate. Um, and if you didn't know, although you're about to, Ava is the home city of Mr. Benjamin Rathert, an incredible storyteller and friend to the show, and of course, its creators, much more importantly. Ben asked us to bring the show down there so he could run one, and I was more than happy to oblige. So Ben put this whole thing together. He booked the venue, he corralled the storytellers, he even hosts the dang thing. So this week, you'll hear from Ben himself, plus friends Kyle Triplett and Trish Pfeiffer, two very compelling Southern Illinois storytellers. For only having three performers, this is a pretty long episode, but it really fit with the vibe of the night of just everyone sitting around in a lovely venue sharing heartfelt pieces. It was pretty magical, and I'm glad we can share it with all of you. Now, I don't want to tell tales out of school, but we've got some more pretty special live shows coming up in the next few months here in Chicago. Keep listening to this podcast for updates as they become available, um, but we'll be doing some blowouts here in the back half of 2018, and I'm really looking forward to letting you hear all of them. But uh, talking about special, you're going to enjoy the heck out of this night of stories and songs you're about to hear, made possible by the one and only Ben Rather. I know I will not forget it. You guys are awesome and helping me achieve a life dream that I didn't know I had until about a month ago. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, Scratch Brewery, where we're at tonight in the servant room, uh, one of my favorite places on earth uh, in my hometown of Ava, Illinois. Uh, I love coming here, I love bringing the kids here. It's a heck of a lot of fun here out in the hills. Uh, my friend Eric runs this podcast that happens to be my favorite podcast called Your Stories. Uh, let's do it every week, and he does a fantastic job, and the talent that he gets in the show is incredible, and the stories that get told, it just, it's, it's everything I love. Let's do both, shall we? I'm so happy to be here tonight for you guys. Um, 
Anyway, uh, I've got a birthday coming up, so let's say this is my early birthday present that I get to do this with you guys tonight. Um, anyway, uh, my, my little story is I grew up in Ava, uh, went away to school for 11 years, came back home. Uh, now I've got the family. Things are a lot different than when we left, but hey, it's all worth it. It's a journey worth going on. I read a quote once recently that says, uh, coming back to where you started is not the same as never having left by Terry Pratchett. A friend of mine um, just got the, a tattoo on his arm, and that's, that's a good reminder uh, for, for life. Um, anyway, uh, Eric is letting me host, so you get to endure me for the next little while. And I've got some really fun friends lined up tonight that I, I, I hope you'll enjoy. Um, I'm going to uh, hand this over to Eric right now because we've got a little music coming up. So, yeah. Hey! Thank you for hosting this show uh, in Ava. I will say I went on a tour last year of the Western United States, and uh, this is already a better crowd than in San Francisco and uh, Minneapolis. So way to go, you guys. Take that, Minneapolis. You are not that cool. Um, the only person not in the group that sponsors this show to host, before Ben, there was an Emmy Award-winning television writer. Uh, <laughs> and the bass player in the movie School of Rock. And now Ben Rather joins that trio, so, uh, yeah. So Ben, why don't you tell them about the music that we're gonna play tonight? Yes, yes indeed. Uh, tonight's theme that I haven't mentioned tonight is home brewed, which fits because we're here in my hometown in a brewery. Um, we I are, don't, wait, I don't get it, can oh, you? Oh, okay. Uh, I'll talk to you in a minute. Okay. Uh, so we're going to be playing, uh, or Eric specifically is going to be playing music from uh, artists that are from Southern Illinois, um, specifically ones Carbondale area up uh, Percy. We've got an artist uh, that, we're, that we're featuring tonight. Um, it's, it's really neat that we've got a few people who are like talented, have made a different songs you've heard before. Um, the first one you definitely know, I guarantee that. Yeah, uh, I'm going to stand. I don't want to sit and do this. That's not rock and roll. Uh, I didn't, so yeah, there's a handful of like relatively famous folks from Southern Illinois. This is one of them. Oh, kind of a one-hit wonder from the yeah. 90s. Sean Colvin? Yeah. Sonny came home to a favorite room. Sonny sat down in the kitchen. She opened a book and a box of two. Sonny came home with a mission She said days go by I'm hypnotized I'm walking on the wire I close my eyes And I'm out of my mind Into the fire You guys remember this one? Last time I heard this was at a grocery store That's not good. Hold on. So this is the part where we're vamping. She said days go by.
With a strap malfunction like that, the NFL is never going to let you play a halftime show again. Uh, you know. Dang it. Sorry about that. Uh, anyway. so hard. Yeah. So uh, Sean Colvin is, is actually from uh, Carbondale. I didn't know that. Went to SIU, then went away, and eventually hit it big with that. So it's pretty awesome. Um, all right. Uh, going to get right to stories. Why don't we start here? Uh, we are starting tonight with a man who is an excellent friend of mine, a person that I have been... Uh, our wives met each other, and that's you know why it it you know lasts and all that. But uh, <laughs> this this man is an incredible musician, an incredibly kind and generous person. I can literally spend hours and hours talking with him endlessly, uh, and it never seems to end. I never want it to end, except our children end up pulling us away, and the fact that we have to go to work tomorrow. Um, I've got Mr. Kyle Triplett. Please. All right. Thanks, man. All right. So yeah, as Ben said, I am, I'm Kyle. I've known Ben for uh, several years, Ben and Nikki. Um, and I was pretty excited. Ben messaged me about this a while back. We keep in regular touch. And he said, hey, I've got this friend that does a podcast. And it's basically we sit and tell stories. And immediately I was attracted to the idea because I love to tell stories. I like to talk. And uh, storytelling is kind of a, an art where I'm from. So where I'm from is the heart of the Ozarks down in Missouri. I grew up on the Current River. Uh, my grandparents own or used to own tons of land along a bunch of creeks and all along the rivers down there. And I grew up uh, not actually seeing anything but bluffs and rivers and fields until I was a teenager. I mean, I remember the handful of times we would go to St. Louis and uh, see an airplane flying overhead and just being mesmerized because all the airplanes I ever saw were you know, 30,000 feet in the air, just a dot in the sky, and you go to St. Louis and there's this looming, you know, uh, just thing above your head. And I, all my friends, my cousins up there would kind of laugh at me like, why are you so amazed? I was like, I've never seen this before. This is crazy. And growing up down there was really interesting. Um, my wife grew up in Carbondale which I considered a city because I grew up in a town of about 400 people, if that tells you anything. 
Carbondale to me, the first time I came, I was all confused because there were one-way streets. Like, whoa, hang on here. And we would drive through town and she'd go, okay, go left here. And then I was immediately noticed that all the cars were facing the same direction. I was kind of like, I've never really driven on a one-way street before. This is, uh, it took me a while. And getting around Carbondale, I remember seeing the apartment buildings that were five stories high and going, wow, look at those, you know? Uh, so it was um, a bit of culture shock for me. And people always kind of laugh whenever I say that because Carbondale's essentially a small town. And Ava, Murfreesboro, all the surrounding towns are small towns. And I always laughed at people that said they graduated with 50 other students or 100 other students because I graduated with 12 people in my class. Yeah, and uh, that was average, you know, 12 to 15 students. Um, I always told people on our senior trip, we went to Hawaii for a week because we could afford to take 12 people to Hawaii for a week. It was... <laughs> It's not that hard. When you have a class of 500, that doesn't really happen. So it was an interesting time growing up there. In the interest of this homebrewed uh, theme, though, there is one story that I have to share. As I said earlier, my wife grew up in Carbondale, and I grew up very, very, uh, I call it backwoods. Um, has anybody ever seen the show Justified? Or part? Yeah. A little bit of it. Okay, it's based in Harlan, Kentucky, and that's kind of where you hear... Like, that's sort of the most, like, Harlan, Kentucky or Virginia are, like, the heart of backwoods, just wild America. And the first, I watched that show, the first time I got onto it, I watched the first, like, five episodes back to back, and I told Melissa, I was like, I know every one of these people. I grew up with them. And uh, so, she always thought that was interesting because I would tell these stories about where I grew up at. She's like, that can't be real. People don't live like that. That doesn't happen because she grew up in Carbondale and she would go to St. Louis and Nashville and Chicago all the time growing up. And I said, St. Louis was just wild for me. That was like the biggest city I'd ever seen in my life until we went to Washington, D.C. And that left such an impact on me as a kid. And to her, that was like a Tuesday. You know, you just go to St. Louis and go to the zoo. And for me, it was like twice a year. I was, this is totally out of my element. Uh, so we got married in June of 2008. We were very young. We were both 20 at the time. Um, much to the uh, chagrin of a lot of people that loved us, we went ahead and got married. And it's been an amazing run. You know, we're hitting 10 years on the 21st of this month, actually. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> she deserves all the applause for that. She's the one that's... <laughs> She's the one that's kept me, kept me alive and kept me sane this whole time. But, but we got married uh, because we met playing bluegrass. Her family had a band, and I was playing with a band at the time. And we were actually in a, uh, it was a family band competition, which is like the most hokey bluegrass thing you can do. Yeah, yeah, you're all nodding your heads. If you've ever, if, if you don't know what a family band is, just Google it and you will see many pictures of awful stereotypes, but I will say stereotypes exist for a reason. <laughs> and uh, these bands were no different, and we were both 19 at the time, and we met down at Silver Dollar City, of all places. Yeah! Yes! You don't get more like bluegrass and backwoods than meeting at a bluegrass and barbecue festival in Silver Dollar City. Uh, yeah, Branson, Missouri, that's right. That is... That is the epitome of Ozark material right there. I was living in Branson at the time, actually. And so we met, and I remember just immediately falling in love with her. 
as soon as I laid eyes on her. And I told her the day that I met her, I said, I'm going to marry you one day. Because that's just when you have no social skills from growing up in the mountains. I, I asked her, I was like, do I bring your dad a pig or how does this work? Like, if we're going to, do we court? How's this, how's this happen? Because we just, uh, it was, yeah, I felt kind of like Gomer Pyle, you know? So, yeah, you just, it was a totally different world. It was two totally opposing worlds, even though they played bluegrass and traveled around and did the same thing that I did. Their experiences were so vastly different than mine. Uh, but we met, and it was, um, it was healing for both of us. Uh, we had come through some really interesting relationships and a lot of life at the same time, and we both kind of, it kind of culminated all at once for us, and when we met, it was just what we both needed together. And so we met, and a year later got married. It was really fast. We just knew what we wanted, and we had to do it. And I told her, I said, you're going to meet my family a lot over the years. Like, you're going to get to know them, and I just want to not warn you, but encourage you that it's really different. Um, because I've been to Carbondale a lot in this time, and I can tell you that what you're going to experience in Bunker, Missouri, is unlike anything you've ever seen. Even in Murfreesboro, Illinois, or God forbid, Ava. Um, and it's... It was interesting. So we, she visited my hometown a few times in the surrounding areas as we dated and got engaged. And then uh, she came down, you know, several times right after we got married. We said, all right, you know, how are we going to do holidays? That's the big, the big question all the time. Who do we spend time with? Who do we, where do we go to Christmas or Thanksgiving? And I said, well, my grandparents always do this big feast for Thanksgiving, and I'd love for you to experience what our family is. And she goes, that would be really fun. That would be so cool to do. I'm excited to meet everybody and really get to know them. And at this point, she had only briefly met my family. She knew my mom a little bit, but had not spent any time with my uncles or my cousins or my grandparents. And uh, I grew up really close to all those people. I have my, let's see, my grandma and grandpa on my mom's side, I have uh, three aunts and uncles and about 11 first cousins. And we were all like brothers and sisters. It was really close. Um, so we grew up really involved in everyone's lives. And so I told her, I said, you're going to see things that are different. And, uh, I told her, I said, also, uh, people don't call me Kyle. They go, I go by Ed. She kind of looked at me like, what? And I was like, Ed or Eddie, you're going to hear people say that a lot. And it's, don't be too weirded out by it. It's a thing that happens. And so we get down there and the first thing somebody says, well, there's Eddie walking up with his wife. And she looks at me and goes, you're not an Eddie, you're Kyle. And this is, and then everywhere we would go in my hometown, you'd stop at the gas station and somebody would go, you know, there's my son or there's my kid or, you know, there's, there's, uh, this is uncle so-and-so. And she's like, is that really your uncle? And I was like, not, not by blood, but, <laughs> but they treated me like it growing up. You know, they took care of me and they chastised me when necessary. And so she was just kind of blown away by this because Carbondale is a very transient town. Being a college town, people don't stay for long. People stay in Marion, Heron, Ava, Duquoin, all these other towns. They kind of settle there, but Carbondale is it's always moving. And her dad worked at the university, and you know you don't work with the same people a lot. There's it's just a constant rotation. And so she didn't grow up with that mindset. Where I grew up at, nobody really leaves. You don't get out. And that was interesting is that I was kind of the one that got out and got away. And people were just like really interested in this. Like, where do you live at? Oh, you live, you're a flatlander now. You know, that was the old joke. Yeah, everybody was asking how much I like corn. You know, just, 
told him, I said, we have that in Missouri too. You just got to go a little further north, you know, yeah. but uh, she, so we, we traveled to Bunker for Thanksgiving and the whole drive down, I'm just pumped up. I've already called all my friends I graduated with, called all my cousins. Everybody's going to be there. I took off from school and took off from work and I said, all right, we're going to spend several days down here. You know, we're going to ride horses. We're going to go see the river. We're going to do all these things I grew up doing because that's kind of the hope. You have this nostalgia, right? that all the things you did as a kid are still the same. The things that impacted you and affected you will be have that same level of impact. And I was so excited to show her like what formed me as I grew up. And so we, we make the, the trip over to Missouri and right away, as soon as we cross the Missouri line, she noticed uh, there's no good way to get there because where I grew up at, it's due west of Carbondale on the map but there is no, you can either go south and back north or north and back south. But if you go straight west, it's just switch back two lane highways the whole way. And she grew up in Illinois and uh, she got pretty car sick on the way over. And so we get to my grandparents' house and we're staying. And I told her, I said, hey, I called my buddy Jake. He just got married this year too. We need to go hang out with him and his wife. You're gonna love them. They were my best friends growing up. And she goes, okay, cool, we'll go hang out. So we get into my grandma's house, we eat supper, and everybody says goodnight. Seven o'clock rolls around. We're still just sitting there. Eight o'clock rolls around. She goes, so is Jake going to come over? You know, are we going to hang out? And I say, he'll call. 9.30 rolls around. Phone still hasn't rang. She's like, are we actually going to leave tonight? And I, go, oh. I said, sure. About 9.45, he calls. He goes, hey, I'm on my way. I'll meet you uptown and pick you up. So, okay, neat. And meeting uptown meant parking at the feed store, which is right next to the high school, because that's the only parking lots in town. Everything else is just a road or a driveway. So we park in front of this feed store, and he said, get in the truck, we'll go. And as soon as we climb in the truck, she looks down, and there's a rifle in the front seat. And she's like, why is that in the truck? And he goes, well, you know, in case we see anything we want to eat. <laughs> she kind of looks at me, and I was like, no, he's serious. It's like deer, turkey, all this stuff. It's all, all good right now. And uh, not that it was legal, but you could eat, you know. And uh, we grew up just kind of, hey, anytime you had a chance, you know, you take what you can get and you, and you put it on the table. And so first, like, red flag for her is like, holy crap, I'm driving around with a bunch of, like, rednecks. This is absolutely absurd. So we get in the truck and we're driving around. And uh, the only place we can buy any kind of drinks or anything, because Melissa just turned 21. So we said, well, we need some beer. She's like, beer? Are we going to go somewhere? I was like, we're just going to drive around. She's like, what are you talking about? I, like, I don't know, you drive around and drink beer. That's what you do, right? And she's like, are you serious? And I was like, that's what we did growing up. We don't have anything else to do. You either go sit in front of the river, which is boring, or you just drive. And so uh, against our better judgment and against her pleadings, we're like, so we drive, <laughs> we drive like 30 miles away to a gas station and buy a bunch of beer. We'd get back in the truck. And I told Jake, I said, uh, take us through this town. And she said, what town is that? And I said, well, I always joke with people that when they ask where Bunker is, it's between Turtle and Oats. <laughs> and she's like, what's Turtle? And I said, Turtle's a town. She said, and I'm assuming Oats is a town as well. And I said, yeah, it really is. And they're honestly, the, the town sign is on both sides of the same sign. Like you drive through, it's just entering and leaving, just poof, and you're done. That's it. There's like three houses and a church and you're gone. But what's interesting is that all through there are these gravel roads. So we were driving down on these gravel roads and she, about 30 minutes goes by and she goes, we haven't seen a single house yet. And I said, no, we're not going to. And so we keep driving. 
And then a couple hours go by, and you know, we're uh, having some beers and talking, and Jake and I are having a blast. This is just like being in high school again. And Melissa's sitting in the seat like, this is the worst experience of my life. I'm terrified because we're driving down a gravel road with just ginormous trees on either side. It's virgin pine forest in the Mark Twain National Forest. So there's like 100 foot tall trees on either side of the road, and it's barely a two lane sized gravel road. And there's not a house or a car to be seen. And so finally about three hours into this road trip, she's like, I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> and I said, hop out. <laughs> not a smart thing for a newly married man to say to his wife, just for the record, it doesn't, uh, doesn't pan out well. So um, we were on this, what I considered a road trip at the time. And eventually about three in the morning, we make it back to my grandparents' house. And at this point, uh, I was beyond inebriated because I thought that was really fun to do, is ride in the passenger seat of a car and just get completely blitzed. She did not find it as fun as I did. And uh, the next day, I had told my grandpa the night before I would go hunting with him the next day. He uh, used to hunt foxes. And uh, it was just a way to train his dogs. He'd never kill or catch anything. He would just kind of chase them around in a big fenced off pen and you would see whose dog is the closest behind the fox and you'd mark it down and they did these competitions all over the country and stuff and that was a way to keep your dogs in shape and so my grandpa i told him the night before i said i'll go with you grandpa i haven't been hunting in a couple of years i'd love to go well i forgot that when he goes hunting it's like five in the morning so we roll in at three in the morning <laughs> and we barely crawl into bed and newly married first time at my grandparents house at five o'clock in the morning the door busts open, the light comes on, and my grandpa just yanks the covers off the bed completely and says, get up, we're leaving the house. <laughs> and of course, Melissa's laying there like, hello, I'm in bed, what do you think you're doing? And she kind of looks up at him, and he just starts whistling and walks out to the kitchen. And I told her, I was like, I have to go. If I don't get out of bed right now, he's just going to come back, and it's not going to be good. And so, uh, yeah, that was her first experience waking up at my grandparents' house on uh, Thanksgiving morning. <laughs> So at 5 a.m., I walk out the door with my grandpa and go get in the truck. And uh, I'd introduced her to my grandmother like twice up to this point. And so she's staying at my grandma's house. I get home about 2 in the afternoon from this trip. And then I said, oh, hey, by the way, my brother wants to go uh, roping. We're gonna, we grew up in the rodeo circuit. And uh, we used to like do roping and ride bulls and all this stuff. And so I said, hey, he wants to go rope. I'm going to head up to the, to the arena with him at my uncle's house. We're going to go ride horses and stuff. I'll, I, if you want to come, come on. We're going to head up there. Because to me, I'm just living it up. This is back home again. And I forgot to ask her if she wanted to go. And so I just kind of said, hey, I'll see you. I'm going to ride horses again. And she was like, yeah, that's okay. Nice. And then uh, so I went up and partied with my cousins for a few more hours that day. And then eventually that, you know, it gets time for supper, for Thanksgiving dinner. And we come back down and uh, we, we ate. And then uh, we hung out that night and played cards. And on the drive home, she just looks at me and she goes, that was the most horrible experience I think I've ever had. She goes, your family's amazing, but who are you? <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, this is, this is like who I grew up as, but since I moved to Carbondale, I'd, you know, you adjust to your environment. And I just slipped back into like banjo playing, rough riding Ed. And she's like, no, I know Kyle. I don't know Ed. And I was like, that was Ed. And she goes, I don't ever want to see Ed again. Let's, let's <laughs> never let that happen. And that was her first experience. Ever since then, it's been great. She uh, quickly learned how much my family loves her. 
how much I love her and how much she loves all of them. We became really close with them, but uh, that was kind of her taste of what I considered home. And it's still funny because I've lived in Carbondale for 10 years and still if I say the word home, she knows what I'm talking about. It's, it's on the river in the bed of the truck, you know, somewhere uh, down in southern Missouri. So she is extremely gracious and she is home for me now. She has been for all these years and it's been really awesome to get to be a part of this community and get to know guys like Ben and Tony and, and get to see what Southern Illinois has to offer as a home because it's been, uh, it's been a growing experience for me and helped me learn a lot as an individual and as a person. And I can say my wife is really thankful for the fact that we no longer have fun in those ways anymore. Our life is quite a bit different with three kids and doing our music on our own terms. We don't we don't resort to those same kind of levels of debauchery anymore, but we have, we have a lot more clean fun now and it's really great. And Southern Illinois is my home for sure. And I'm, I thank you for this opportunity. It's been awesome. And I can't wait to hear everybody else's stories. Thanks. Thank you. All right. You know, uh, where Kyle's from, I've only ever been down there just one time. It was me and my buddies had a little road trip when we graduated high school. So we went over to like Current River, Jack's Fork, which I found is where he's from. Uh, we, we were camping at the town of Eminence uh, and we were, the roads he was describing, just wind and whip and there's like no central way to drive around in Missouri, apparently. They didn't figure that out yet. Um, but we, we, we were following um, the Highway K and we were looking at the map ahead and we finally found Eminence merges with Highway KK. So there's the sign right above our campsite that says highways KKK. I was like, this is great, we're, we, we must be here. Uh, good trip though. Anyway, Kyle, thank you so much. Um, our next speaker I am super duper excited about tonight. Uh, she is an incredible person who has influenced me so much uh, in a lot of ways. You, do you have that friend on Facebook who posts the things that you wish you were thinking and you're like, oh, that, hang on, that, that's really smart. But then like, I don't actually speak to her as much over the last year or so as I probably should. And, and she's an incredible inspiration for me. Um, my wife and I have had a, a great experience with her specifically as she uh, works as a doula uh, and she was there for the birth of our daughter, Evie, and she is incredible. Uh, everybody, Miss Trish Fee. It's the middle of the night. I hadn't been asleep for long when my phone buzzed near my ear. Instantly awake, I pick up and hear the midwife's voice on the other end of the line. It's time, she says. She's ready for us. In seconds, I'm out of bed and brewing some coffee. It's a simple thing, brewing a cup of coffee but it is a ritual I've come to know and love through my years in service as a birth doula and midwife's assistant. It's the calm before the storm as I fill the pot with water. It's the feeling of anticipation and excitement as the water heats and comes to a rolling boil. It's the wish for strong and productive contractions as the beans grind to powder. The aspiration to do my work to the very best of my ability as the water sloshes over the grounds. The hope that it will be enough as they release their aroma into the air. It's a touch of dread for the unusual event that this birth may become complicated as I wait for the seeming endless 120 seconds for the coffee to brew. And the eager joy at once again being privileged enough to have been invited to the holy space that any birthy room becomes as I take my first scorching sip and head out the door 
in the dim still hours of night to meet a brand new life. I'm a doula. Do you know what that means? It means that I attend births, but not in the medical sense. There are doctors and nurses and midwives that fill that role. It's their job to keep mothers and babies safe, to monitor their well-being and meet any biological complications that may arise during the process. My job is different. My job is to build a personal relationship with an expectant mother. I meet with a client a few times during their pregnancy, usually in her own home, where she is the boss. I learn her hopes and dreams for her baby and her life as a new mother. I help her examine and confront her fears and anxieties. I educate, I listen, I understand, and I witness. I attend the labor and birth and I remain available in the postpartum to help her process what happened. And it's the most wonderful job in the world. One that has been done by experienced women as long as women have had babies, but has only recently become a profession. It is a job I feel I was born to do. This particular birth is a planned home birth, and I should say that I am using a bit of poetic license in the telling. I've changed names, and I'm writing in the present tense, partly because I have a BA in literature and English papers are always written in the present tense. <laughs> <laughs> For an English major, Romeo is always kissing Juliet. But mostly because scenes like this unfold hundreds of times a day, have since the beginning of humanity and will until the end. Scenes like this are playing out right now. The midwife and I are met at the door by her sister, soon to be an aunt, and her mother, soon to be a grandma. She's upstairs, they say, clearly relieved we have arrived. Do you want some coffee? <laughs> Women at home births always seem to want to be brewing something or cooking something. Maybe it comes from the maternal instinct to create new things from simple elements. I don't know, but I always accept. People seem to need to keep their hands busy when they are excited. Auntie and Grandma move to the kitchen, and the midwife and I climb, calmly and quietly climb the stairs and pause at the door to her room to take in the scene. The air is heavy with expectation, the room dimly lit. The silence interrupted every few minutes by moans. Liz is on her hands and knees on the floor in front of a couch in her room, clearly nearing her time. She looks up at us, beaming a huge smile then returns to her work. Her midwife moves toward her slowly, touches her gently, and tells her how beautiful she looks. Then she asks if she can listen to her baby with the Doppler, and I go to work setting up the birthing pool. I can tell by the way she is laboring that if this baby is going to be born in water as Liz plans, I need to move fast. Soon the pool is in place and Liz is easing herself into the warm water, beaming again. A birth pool is like a warm, comforting blanket for a woman in labor. She draws it over herself and settles in with relief. The heat eases the sharpness of her surges and the water buoys her belly and body. Relieved of the pressure of gravity and comforted by the water, her mind dives deeper into the intensity of the glorious work she is doing. As I pour water over her back, I remind her as I remind all my clients with the same refrain, you are strong, you are safe, you're surrounded by love, and everything is exactly as it should be. Her husband is by my side. I show him how to place his hand on the small of her back in just such a way as to give her some relief from the pressure on her spine. The look of devotion on his face brings tears to my eyes, 
and I give up to give him some privacy and head downstairs to check on that coffee. The midwife quietly holds the space outside the door to their room, entering every 15 minutes or so to listen to baby and assess Liz's well-being. I chat with auntie and grandma about how things are going, reassure them that all is well, and try to avoid making predictions about how long this will take. Privately, I think it won't be long, but nothing can be more humbling to a birth worker than thinking you know how a birth will play out, and then being struck with a completely different set of circumstances. I move to the foot of the stairs to listen and notice that the moans have a slight grunt at the tail end. Things really are moving. The air in the room is different now, it's electric. Liz's eyes are wild. She looks right at me. I don't think I can do it, she says. Of course you can, I reply. You already are. You are strong, you are safe, you are loved, and everything is exactly as it should be. She nods and returns to her work. My shirt is wet as I lean over the pool to squeeze her hips and ease the sensations of her pelvis opening. Quietly, auntie and grandma slip into the room, big sister in auntie's arms. The midwife speaks. Okay, Liz, on your next push, if you reach down, you'll be able to feel the head. Dad, do you still want to catch? And as the sun broke the dawn on winter solstice that morning, a baby girl with locks of red hair slips gently from her mother's womb, her first home, through warm water into her father's hands and the hearts of her waiting family and birth team. They give her a name that means light. It was a moment to save her, as I have so many births before hers. But although all was well with mother and baby, I left with a cold feeling in the pit of my stomach. Something had changed within me that morning. Something that had been brewing for some time had finally reached a critical point. Birth work feeds me, it fills me up, it nourishes my soul, and it gives me hope for the future. I didn't choose this work because I love tiny babies. I didn't choose this work because I love women. I do. I chose this work because I see we are living in a broken and sick society, and I think birth is an opportunity to change that. It is an opportunity to remember that what are we doing here and create a culture that cares about the future and makes choices that encourages a world where humans and the planet itself will thrive. You're probably wondering how birth can do that. I'll tell you, that's why I'm here. When a woman is preparing to welcome a new baby to her family, she is in a state of biological transition. She feels a new weight of responsibility and she is eager to make choices and changes in her life to provide her baby with the best life possible. She feels anticipation and excitement and fear. She asks question upon question. She dreams and she researches. Often in our culture, these qualities are funneled into capitalism. What color should we paint the nursery? Which stroller is best? How do you start a college fund? But when these qualities are really nurtured in a woman, we see her take responsibility for herself and for her baby. She researches how birth works. She educates herself on birth practices and interventions. She begins to question who has the authority over her body and her baby. And she knows deep in her heart that she is the expert on her body and her baby. She chooses a provider who supports her desires and a place to birth where she feels safe and supported. And she carries that skill into her parenting and raises her children to do the same. She teaches her children to question, to do research, and to be responsible for their choices. She launches them into the world as citizens who care. 
citizens who take responsibility for their choices and work to manifest a society that does the same. I work in birth because I truly believe it can change the world. Of course, in the field of welcoming new life, there is incredible joy, but my clients do not have children in vacuums. They are real li women living real lives. So I've not only witnessed their happiness, I have also held space for their pain. I've witnessed them confront unbelievable challenges, rise above them, and succeed. I have held their hands as they've faced unimaginable loss. I have held their babies as they have nearly slipped beyond our grasp, but returned even stronger with the help of doctors, nurses, and midwives. Birth work is always a lesson. It's never the same. Innovative ideas and perspectives are always a necessity. Through this work, I have not only learned about the unlimited strength women possess, I have also learned about the unlimited strength I possess. I have also witnessed intolerable abuses, and I have watched the women I come to love cope with that impact. The simple ease and yes, holiness of Liz's birth left me reeling once again over the many injustices women face in this world. Liz gave birth in Missouri. Had she lived in Illinois, her midwife would have been committing a criminal offense. In the mid-1960s, Illinois stopped issuing licenses to home birth midwives. By the mid-80s, they were no longer practicing, leaving the majority of the state without access to licensed accountable home birth care. There are a handful of nurse midwives currently practicing birth in the northern quarter of the state, but the rest of the state is now currently being served by a black market, a situation that by construct makes home birth far more dangerous to mothers and babies than it ought to be. Meanwhile, there are educated, credentialed midwives who are experts in home birth petitioning the state with thousands of mothers and families by their sides, begging for licensure, pleading to be held accountable for the standard of their care. These are certified professional midwives, and they can practice legally in more than 30 other states, including Missouri, Wisconsin, and Indiana. More than half of those states cover their care with the state Medicaid funds. For over 40 years now, women and midwives in Illinois have filed bills to license this credential, and for more than 40 years, they have been denied by state legislators. Men and women who know next to nothing about birth, but still find themselves with the authority to assert where a woman can and cannot give birth, with the help of trained professionals. And let me make this clear, home birth itself is not illegal in Illinois. What is illegal is to have a highly educated, trained professional who has dedicated their entire career to the practice of home birth attend your delivery. In a state that licenses more professions than almost any other state, including, and this is true, hair braiders, Illinois refuses to license home birth midwives. The absurdity is palpable. In 2010, aghast at the situation, I co-founded an organization called Illinois Friends of Midwives. We sponsor bills and lobby legislators to bring broader access to midwifery care in Illinois. But all my efforts, whether in birthing rooms or marble offices and those of thousands of families over the course of decades, hasn't changed the fact that on one side of a river, the midwife who attended Liz's birth is a respected, business-owning professional who can be Googled and reviewed and hang a sign outside her office door, proudly declaring both her name and her profession. And on the other side of that river, she is a criminal who faces jail time, enormous fines, and loss of livelihood should she be caught. As I crossed the river that morning back into the land of Lincoln, a name I find synonymous with freedom, the emptiness in my stomach gnawed at me, and the thing that had been brewing in me 
since I found myself pregnant and looking for midwives many years ago, filled me with a fiery rage and a determination that I must keep fighting. This hot rage combined with a more bitter ingredient I had been avoiding facing. After a divorce in 2017, I had become a single mother. And try as I might, I was never able to make the on-call lifestyle of birth work combined with the demands of being a single mom. I cannot be in two places at once. I cannot be with a client for 24 hours as she works to welcome her child and be with my own children. And I cannot work to change the policies and laws that suppress women when I'm holding the gaze of one woman as she bellows her babe into this corrupt and complicated world. So, although birth work is the work that I was born to do, I made the decision to do something else. A skill I cultivated when I was making decisions about how to birth and raise my own children. I made this decision so that my children can trust their mother will be there with them when they wake in the morning, and also so other women can have the opportunity to serve mothers in an environment that welcomes and celebrates their efforts. I went home and started my application for law school. I start in the fall. Somehow, some way, I will find a path to give Illinois mothers the same choices as their sisters living in other states. So that's my story, the story of how I homebrewed a future attorney within myself. And it's Liz's and her baby's story too. Um, I also want to thank you all for listening to my story, but most especially Dr. Ben Rathert for inviting me, and as always his astonishing wife, Nikki, who granted me the tremendous honor of attending the birth of their daughter. I'll be forever grateful. Trish, that was wonderful. Um, that, that's only when I became aware of what was going on with uh, home birth in Illinois and realizing the disparity between it and other states uh, did I realize how big of a problem it is. Um, but I'm really thankful we've got people as smart and brave as you fighting for those women who want to have and should have the right to deliver at home. Uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> All right. Um, the next speaker is me. Sorry. Uh, so, I, I have a little story that I wanted to tell. We're here in Southern Illinois, we're, we're here in, in my home area. I, I am a physician and I have two doctor stories for you. Um, no HIPAA violations, I promise. Um, but, the first one takes place when I was in medical school up in Rockford, alright? So, this is a story that takes place, it's a friend of a friend of mine. The, the medical student involves her name is uh, Nicole Scott. She was a, a, a year ahead of me in school. She was working with a new urologist named Dr. Michael Fumo. Fumo's great. He's a smart guy, fresh out of residency. He taught us all kinds of things. He was part of Rockford Urological Group. The story goes like this. Nikki and Dr. Fumo are in the clinic one day. She's rounding with him. She's seeing patients uh, later in the day. And he gets handed a chart for a patient who has been seen many times in the uro urological group. Now, this, these are bladder doctors, uh, testicle doctors, that, that sort of thing. This is a young man who has recurrent urinary tract infections. That's not normal. Young men don't get UTIs. It's, it's, something's wrong. Well, he's had the workup. He's had the scopes. He's had the tests. Nobody's found any answers so far. 
Well, so this is like his, I don't know, seventh or eighth time he's been into the clinic, so, for, but first time Dr. Fumo's seen him, they go into the room, Dr. Fumo does the whole exam, does the whole rundown, well, tell me your family history, tell me your social history, do you smoke, do you uh, do methamphetamines, you know, the, the, the line, what do you do for work, he has some kind of a mundane desk job, they're not getting anywhere with this, and Nikki said she was just bored. Um, they were just about ready to finish the visit with Dr. Fumo about to throw up his hands again and say, well, I don't know what else anybody else could do for you either. When the guy says, well, you didn't ask me about my other job. Why, why would you say it like that? <laughs> my other job? Uh, so, so he's obviously bit and said, what, what's your other job, sir? He says, well, I'm a human Zahato bag. In such a way, and, and, and you know, neither of them knew what a Zahato bag was. Now, just you know, to cut to the end of the page here, a Zahato bag is a wineskin worn over the shoulder in the Basque region of Spain uh, by shepherds and other field workers. And he explained that he is hired to go to parties where a catheter is inserted, he is emptied out, and then he is filled back up with wine, which he then distributes to the other members of the party. No! They did explain his urinary tract infections, though. <laughs> they got right to the bottom of it there. Did I mention that tonight's theme is homebrewed? I've got one more little one there, and this actually happened to me. So, again, no HIPAA violations here. About three years ago, I'm working in a clinic. I am seeing an elderly gentleman who is nearing the end of his life. Um, wonderful person. I love seeing him and his wife. Um, I did some routine labs and I found that his potassium was very high. Now if your potassium is high, that puts you at risk of heart arrhythmias, which can be potentially fatal and dangerous. Uh, so uh, I call him up as soon as I get those results and I say, hey, we need to get you in the hospital. You need to have some K-axalate to bind that potassium to get you safe. And they, we decided, discussed where we were going to go to Carbondale and DuCoin. I used the hospitalists at both locations and he wanted to stay in DuCoin, no problem. I get on the phone and I call up the hospitalist at DuPoint. Now, this is uh, a gentleman whose name is Brian Burns, I learned. He was working with my former partner, Dr. Patrick Riley. Uh, and this uh, guy answered the phone. I'd explained the situation. It was all no problem. Um, it all made sense. And we wrote out the orders, got the patient in, bada bing, bada boom. It's another day at clinic. Let's do whatever. Uh, two weeks later. I'm reading the newspaper, and there is a story that breaks, and the story is not a good one. Uh, it turns out that Dr. Brian Burns has killed his wife. Uh, he has attempted to burn the body. He has failed to do so. Uh, the body was discovered by a hiker uh, who noted buzzards in the distance. They, apparently, they, him and his wife owned a large piece of property near Harrisburg, uh, and it was found in such a way so again, he tried to burn the body. Brian Burns, that's, anyway. Um, when I did the math on this, he would have performed this act within a few days of the last time I spoke with him. So hooray for that. Uh, doctors are crazy is what I'm trying to get at here. Uh, you, you just, you can't trust them people. No, but, but seriously, what I, the point I do want to bring about this is that obviously doctors are human, 
providers are human, nurse practitioners are human, and physician's assistants are human. They have a lot of responsibility put on them, basically, essentially taking people's lives in their hands. The number of times I have to make a decision during the day to change a patient's meds, to check their labs or not, is that a big deal? Well, no, don't worry about it, that sort of thing. I do not process that this has a massive impact in a person's life because who could? You know, it's, it's a thousand things a day. You can't internalize all that and make that matter for every single time. It's like, I treat it just like I'm a car mechanic, just like I'm a plumber. These are the things that I have to do. Now, at the end of the day, don't, don't get me wrong, a big part of the job is sitting with the patient in the clinic, listening to the fact that they have cancer and they've got three months and they've got a goal that they want to hit before then, if it's possible. They can just get down to Florida to see their grandkids one more time. Buddy, let's do it. Um, and that's the part of the job that makes it worthwhile. But it's, it's so much, it's just, it's everything. It's the deliveries at 12 in the morning. Uh, Nikki gave me the esteemed pleasure of being able to deliver both of our children and being able to hold them. Uh, I, I, I can't replace that. But you know, even delivering other people, it's, it's, it's a wonderful experience every single time it happens. And I'm so happy that I get to be allowed to be involved in other people's lives. But you gotta stay grounded. You got to make sure that you still know what's going on and that when you're in jail for having murdered your wife and attempting to burn her body, you don't then have a conversation with your jail mate about maybe we could kidnap the prosecuting lawyer and maybe with a little threatening, he might just let this whole thing disappear. Which happened, because Dr. Brian Burns decided that, you know what, it's going to be fine. I'm going to, I'm going to just get all, make this all go away with a little bit of bribe money and extortion. You've got to stay attached to life. I see my parents once a week. I see my kids as often as possible. We walk to the park, we play in the backyard, the little things that keep you going because it's, it's all difficult and it's all strange. But Eric, can I have you come up here, sir? Yes, Eric is going to help me out here because I've got a song that I want to sing. The world needs to hear my song. No, I, I, I love to sing, um, and it is always wonderful that I, I can sing at these things with Eric's help. Uh, this song is by one of my favorite artists of all time, uh, Mr. Jackson Brown. Uh, I just recently got his album, Saturate Before Using, uh, which I know every song on anyway, but I never actually knew there was an album that had them all together on it there. I listened to this guy a million times in high school, and this song in particular. I did not know I was gonna go into doctoring and being a physician and all that stuff until like much later in my life, but it's funny because this song always kind of stuck with me from there, so. Hey Ben. Yes. More like Brian tries to burn. <laughs> Ooh. Oh. All right, guys. Hey, we're doing it. Yes, sir. All right. One, two, three, four. Doctor, my eyes have seen the years. And the slow parade of fears without crying Now I want to understand I have done all that I could To see the evil and the good without hiding You must help me if you can Doctor, my eyes Was I So long. 
just where they will I never noticed them until I got this feeling That it's later than it seems Doctor my eyes And tell me what you see I hear their cries Just say if it's too late for My eyes cannot see the sky. Is this the pride for having learned not how to cry? guys so there's a bit of a bonus story at the end of this one uh kyle preceded his piece with a brief story about his sister and their divergent musical taste that i thought was really great i cut it out of the main body of the episode purely for time reasons but i wanted to make sure to include it here because kyle is such a cool thoughtful dude with lots of great stuff to say so here is some bonus from kyle uh growing up where i did i have a brother and a sister my brother is very close to me we are about 13 months apart almost irish twins <laughs> Uh, very close to being in that category, but my sister, she's about nine years older than me. And I remember growing up, um, I'm kind of a child of the 90s, even though I was born in the late 80s, because my sister grew up in the heart of that. She was in high school all through the mid-90s, mid to late 90s, and I grew up when she was in charge of the radio in the car and the remote control of the TV. So I grew up with uh, a lot of the great music and TV shows of the 90s, and that's really... Uh, really dear to my heart all of that art is and my sister is a fascinating individual we couldn't be more different uh, when my wife first met her she noted two things um, you would never know that I'm related to my brother and sister by looking at us because I look nothing like them and also the fact that uh, my brother and I are similar in build and height and my sister is about five foot two and so she's she's tiny she's the, the, by far the smallest person in the family uh, but she has definitely the biggest personality and the most heart of anyone i've ever met and what's really fascinating is uh <clears throat> growing up where i did down there on the river bluegrass and folk music are huge down there and uh, the church i grew up in there was a band that would play all the time they were a bluegrass band and i remember being fascinated by the banjo and i would go to this restaurant in town every monday night they would have a jam session and the ladies would all bring pies and it was like a pie eating contest almost there's just so many pies and these guys who were all uh in my mind they were all old dudes and now i realize they weren't all that old they were just <laughs> tired um, <laughs> As a dad of three, I can say I understand being that tired. Uh, but they, they played bluegrass, and I would always watch the banjo players that would come through and be fascinated with that. And so at the age of 13, after a couple of years of just hounding my parents, they bought me a banjo. And I took lessons for a few months, and then I kind of taught myself to play. And I, uh, my sister had already graduated and kind of left home, and so... 
her musical influence was gone and at that point my brother and I were kind of getting into the same thing so the house changed from punk rock and pop to country and bluegrass and all the music that was in the house became really oriented around folk music and I started playing banjo all the time by the time I was 15 I was on the road uh, it, was, it was such a small town that whenever I started going on the road, my, perf- my principal lived just, I say he was my neighbor, it was about a mile and a half away, he was the closest neighbor we had. So I would drive up to his house and I would talk to him on the weekends and go, hey, if I help you haul extra hay this weekend or if I help you with your cows, can I get out of school for three days this week to go on a trip to Iowa to play music? And he was like, and so we had this, <laughs> I wouldn't call it bribery, I'd say it's more of a, you know, it was a, yeah, it was an understanding we had. And they were really gracious in allowing me those opportunities because, A, it was good publicity for the town to have, you know, the hometown boy out on the road. And, and also it was a good opportunity because we didn't have a lot of those growing up there. It was pretty much you go cut down trees for a living or you work in the mines for a living. And uh, since I had the opportunity to do something different, they were extremely gracious with me. And they let me have that. So I spent most of my high school career on the road pretty much every weekend. I would take off on Fridays and come home late Sunday night. And I would go all over the country, really. We traveled a lot. And in that uh, time, I met a lot of really interesting people. But at the same time that I was doing that, my sister was working through her college degree and she was heavy into politics and she went to Springfield, Missouri and then from there she went to Washington DC and and, uh, she started working for all these really awesome amazing high-level people and doing these really cool things and in the midst of that she kind of fell in love with heavy metal and death metal and the more I played banjo the further she really seemed to like Rob Zombie and so um, it's it developed this really interesting relationship because she's always been my biggest fan and I've always just desperately wanted her to like love what I do but at the same time I wanted to understand more of what she was into because I like all kinds of music I listen to a really vast variety of music my heart is in the bluegrass and the country world but I listen to all of it and she's the one that would send me records and she was always so cool because at Christmas even though I didn't see her a lot I would always get CDs in the mail and it would be you know Marty Robbins and Hank Williams and uh, Mogwai and Smashing Pumpkins <laughs> and it was this just mix of stuff because she had that understanding in that respect you know she loved what I did enough to support it but she also wanted me to broaden my horizons my understanding of the world enough that she wanted to push me a little bit and it's always really interesting when we get together uh, just because how different yet alike we are because of our understanding of the world she's traveled a lot for her work and uh, she's lived in many states she moved from Washington DC to California a couple years ago Um, I've lived only in Missouri and Illinois but I've traveled quite a ways outside of that and so we share those experiences of culture and music has kind of been the thing that's tied us together she doesn't really play and she doesn't sing but she appreciates art and that's been the thing that's kept us close all the years and it's been really interesting uh, to see how that has developed over the years this podcast has been produced in association with the nerdalogs to find out more about the nerdalogs and their shows visit www.nerdalogs.com or facebook.com slash nerdalogs thanks for listening